Yes, hello out there, and welcome back to None But the Brave, a presentation of Evergreen Podcasts. I am Hal Schwartz, and as always, I'm here with my great buddy Flynn McLean. We're going to start the show tonight. We had already recorded, and due to the events of this morning, Wednesday, July 20th, with the Springsteen ticket sale, we felt we needed to do something to discuss what happened and which could only charitably be described as a fiasco. So Flynn, I'll throw it to you first, your impressions of what took place this morning. Well, went in with a verified fan code, entered two tickets, tried to find where, where one work pair was available, wanted GA or wanted seats not too far behind on the floor or on the side. And you had prepared me for dynamic pricing and platinum tickets, but n- I was not prepared for $1,500 tickets, $2,000 tickets, $5,000 tickets. I was not prepared for that, and that was just absurd, just absurd in my mind. Yeah, it's absurd is barely even scratching the surface, and I think because we have previously discussed the dynamic pricing on this show, and I had said I am a proponent. I do believe the promoter and the artist should get their money. And if you're talking about an $800 pit ticket at the Garden, I understand there are some people who disagree with me on this. I find that completely justifiable. Uh, Bruce is playing the world's greatest arena on a Saturday night. There's tons of money in New York. That I can get. What happened this morning does not appear to be market-based pricing because, as you pointed out, there were what appeared to be hundreds of seats on the floor not even in good spots, priced for $2,000 and up. Some of them as much as $5,000, and that's before the service charge, which on a platinum ticket, it comes out to about 20%. So you're out the door if you click to purchase those tickets, $6,000 a piece. Now, it just strikes me as market manipulation. Let's be honest about it. It seems to me that they're putting these tickets out there for $5,000, to try and get people to panic. So when they see a $1,500 seat, they go, oh, $1,500, what a great bargain. And they get them to buy that. As you know, and as you just pointed out, I do ticket sales all the time. I've done ticket sales for the Stones recently. I've done for Pearl Jam, of course, other large acts, some smaller acts. I've never seen anything like what happened today. I've certainly seen the Rolling Stones in a hot show the first row behind the B stage, which is a prime ticket, go into the thousands of dollars. I have never seen random seats throughout the venue. I saw today there was a third level seat for $950 plus service charge. That's $1,200 for a third level seat. There is no market at all for $1,200 third-level Bruce Springsteen tickets in Tampa. That is just nonsense. You would never price a ticket like that on the secondary market. And if you did, it would never sell. Well, when you keep saying market pricing, if they don't sell at $900 for that third-level seat or even $5,000 at that first for the better seats that they were selling on right off the stage or, uh, or right behind the pit, wouldn't if they don't sell wouldn't the market dictate that those prices decline but that's what would happen right that is certainly what has happened with other acts although we've never really seen yeah this five thousand dollar tickets before maybe once or twice for the stones but not on a wide scale basis and it happened in boston as well and this was the opening that was the opening price on some of these tickets and that's just (laughs) that's just absurd and it's 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 an insult, and people are rightfully pissed off. I, you know, if they were a thousand, I could understand it. If it was eight hundred, I can understand it. But five thousand dollars, you know, if my wife and I are going to a show, that's going to be ten thousand dollars even before we get to the service charges. And believe it or not, we would never spend that. But if somehow it did, if somehow we did spend that money, I am writing out the damn set list for that show, and he's opening with protection. Okay. let's be clear. Nobody and I mean nobody in Tampa, Florida, was paying twelve thousand dollars for a pair of tickets in the 35th row in the middle of the floor. And I challenge if Live Nation or Ticketmaster or the Springsteen organization wants to provide proof that someone actually paid those tickets 
we will be happy to see it and correct the record. But it, we know it's impossible. It's an embarrassment. And I, I just don't know what's going to happen here. What I, what I think is the case is it will follow the path at, that we've seen from other acts. And, and I follow this a lot, as you know. Which, Eddie which Vedder, is them? Eddie Vedder did a solo tour. He was playing small venues, the Beacon in New York. The Beacon sold out. People were freaking out. They, had, they put platinum tickets on sale. Loge tickets, not particularly good seats. People bought for $1,000 in a panic. Then as the show approached, there were tons and tons of tickets in the first five rows for less than half that price. And the people who bought the loges were extremely upset. We know the prices are going down. They're certainly not going up <laughs> from $6,000. That, that we can say for sure. But I think as I expressed on Twitter today, Patience is really a virtue here, and you have to understand what they're doing. I'm really shocked, and it's a terrible look for Bruce. It's quite frankly not a good look for the music industry at all. It's inexplicable what took place this morning, and we're going to get to the tour dates and all that because we haven't discussed that yet. But really, it's and the use of the verified fan, I have to say, also strikes me as manipulative because we had a four-hour pre-sale where you had to have a code and they basically freaked everyone out about having these codes. Then we start a general sale at 3 p.m. Eastern. And I don't know what happened. Everyone was in a queue. And suddenly it said for everyone across the country, the queue was paused. People sat for 45 minutes. It finally restarted. And then basically they had taken all the tickets down. So what did they make people sit there for 45 minutes for across the entire country? The whole thing is really quite shocking. And again, if they've lost me on this, they are way, way out there and they have lost everyone. Because again, I will defend the artist's right to earn the money from their performance, but this is totally different than what we've been talking about in recent shows. When the ticket prices kind of leaked out and they, and they really, they were more of a leak. They really weren't on the Ticketmaster site. They were they kind of popped up on the Mohegan Sun uh, Ticketmaster page for about five minutes, or the tick or the Mohegan Sun Arena page for about five minutes. There were some uh, some price some price levels on the on the Philadelphia show on on that on their ticketing ticketing service site, and so people saw that the top price was four hundred, and they were already losing people there. I mean, I don't know if people were just saying, "Oh, we're charging four hundred dollars, I'm out," or or if they really are going to be out, or if they're going to going to cave at some point. But if if they're losing people at 400, then at at even at a thousand, they're going to be losing even more people. And certainly, couldn't have they manipulated the market with lesser prices? I mean, that's just, I, it's just ridiculous what what these prices were. I'm sorry to keep harping on this, but as I said, five thousand dollars. The New York Post would love to run a headline. Bruce Springsteen charges five thousand dollars for tickets, and next thing you know, they got a PR nightmare on their hand, which which they deserve to be. No, this I, I don't know how they're going to respond to this. It really they've agreed with the promoters to deals. These tickets didn't come out of thin air. I saw people saying, "Well, Bruce must not know about this." Bruce he knows. <laughs> he they negotiate a deal to play a show. And part of that is he's going to receive a certain amount of money to play the show. And in return for that, the promoter can pr price the show in, in a certain way. They know. I mean, th there's just no way possible that the Springsteen organization did not understand they had agreed to dynamic pricing. Uh, let's face it. These guys are some of the best music management <laughs> the world has ever seen. They're informed. They've been briefed on this. They knew exactly what was going to happen. Now, did they know there was going to be $5,000 tickets in the middle of the floor coming out from the Ticketmaster algorithm? That we can't say for sure, but they certainly knew what the impact of what they were agreeing to is. And again, I, I caution people to try and remain calm. I know this is incredibly frustrating. Today was hours of pointless time spent in front of a computer Hopefully, as time goes on, as we've seen on some of these other tours, the prices are going to equalize. Now, obviously, we're looking a week from Friday. There are five New York area shows going on sale at one time. 
based on what was happening this morning, that is not going to be a fun day. <laughs> well, it almost sounds like it's not even worth trying for if you're just going to log in and you're going to see $5,000 tickets. It's like, well, I'm not buying that. I wonder if they're going to respond, if they're going to adjust their actions based on the feedback from today, but I'm not holding my breath for that. Well, I'm going to be curious to see what happens in that regard too. And and I don't know how much they can. They've already agreed to these shows. Uh, whatever Bruce is getting paid and whatever they decide in terms of creating a pricing matrix for these shows, clearly there's the base price is not changing. There's going to be dynamically priced tickets. We expected that all along. It's just what happened today is is completely outside any understandable realm. And <laughs> and it's just, again, not to, to repeat myself, but it is a horrible look for Bruce. I, I, I just don't know how they would possibly justify what took place today. It, the pricing is certainly disgusting. But beyond that, the 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 verified fan stuff and and the stress they're putting the fans under, the whole thing is, is as you just said, is there even a point to try in these initial on sales? And I did warn you. I, you know, we can be honest with people. How many times over the past year did I say we have to adjust ourselves? We're probably not going to buy tickets on the first day of sale. And and I did believe that, but I I never expected. <laughs> anything like we saw today it I, just unbelievable yeah and unfortunately when it comes to bruce even the most laid back among us get a little get a little uptight you know we want to have our tickets in hand we want to even three months prior to the show we want to know where we're going we want to know where we're sitting or, or standing it's going to take a huge shift in thinking for us to 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 approach these tickets, either that or just spend $1,500 on a, on a GA or, or a good floor seat. Look, that's not realistic for just about anyone. And I think even if you could afford it, it's not going to charity. So who wants to pay that? And not me, that's for sure. Now, the other thing before we move on and discuss some of the dates, in Tulsa right now, I just pulled up tickets. GAs are platinum. There's two separate price levels listed. One is $1,950 and the other is $695. And that's Tulsa. That's, you know, the always the forever eternal hotbed of Bruce fandom. Well, I, but the thing about the two price levels is why is that $1,950 listed when they're selling tickets, the same exact ticket in the same exact location for $695? The only thing I can read there is that that $1,950 ticket is there so that, again, people will say, oh, my God, let's pick up these $695 tickets because they could otherwise be $2,000. So we're getting a bargain. Do you see any other reason that that would be listed like that? That is so bizarre to me. So no, I, I don't. I had even hadn't even thought about that. Actually, I had I have not looked at the Tulsa ticket page, but good to know. The other thing is I really believe in Tulsa, which as you pointed out, is not a big Bruce market and certainly nothing like the Northeast. If you want to go in and buy a ticket now, that's certainly you're right. But I, I gotta think those prices are gonna drop substantially. Now we're gonna talk about the tour dates, but before I just noticed there's an article in Variety that is out now from Chris Willman, the senior music writer, about this fiasco today. And it, it's interesting because he makes the point, speaking to industry sources, they're shocked by what went on. He says that nobody can recall a time where basically every seat in the building grew to 10 times or more the value of the base price, which, it, which is what happened today. Well, if he sh if those music executives are shocked, I I don't know why they would be. They kind of allowed this to happen. Did did they not? I mean, weren't they they set the stage for this? Bruce Bruce and his management team certainly didn't pull this out of the air. No, but this has been used as as Wilman is saying here 
this has been used many, many times before, but never implemented like this. Uh, people ha have never seen pricing like this. And, and like I said earlier in the episode, in the stones, there are a couple of really high priced pairs. There are certainly many other pairs that people would consider expensive. But we saw so many tickets today at these pricing levels. Now, I, I see her also, he did reach out to the organization and <laughs> they declined the comment. So that actually, I think, speaks volumes to me. They, they certainly didn't issue a statement saying, we're totally caught off guard by this and we're going to get to the bottom of it. They just declined to say anything. Okay, so two things. I want to respond to you on first one was that so you're basically saying that whatever algorithm that Ticketmaster was using went 10 times above what they really should have been doing or at least five times above no like I'm saying here there's just a surprise expressed that they've never seen it implemented in this fashion what okay, caused so, that I, I don't know all right so it's 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 this is the extreme that they've ever seen and it's they, they yeah they pushed the they pushed the envelope here and they just opened the envelope and scattered the contents all over the freaking place. And the second thing is that I think the no comment did not do Bruce Inc any favors. Just no. by not saying anything, by actually giving a no comment is just that's not a good look and they're going to deserve any any media backlash that they're going to get. Well, and Wilman is a major reporter. I think he's the lead music reporter for Variety. And if they're not going to comment to someone like him, well, they're certainly not going to comment to someone like us and many other writers out there. So, yes, it's not a good look. And one of the things that is pointed out here is that elsewhere in the article I see, there are supporters of the dynamic pricing, which, again, to be totally honest, I wouldn't call myself a supporter of it, but I understand it and I understand why it's being used and it makes sense to me. Even people who strongly back this system, they're horrified by how it was implemented today. So we're going to hopefully get some more information as to what happened here. It seems at the very minimum, the algorithm could be set with some kind of ceiling so that <laughs> a ticket never goes beyond 1500 or 2000 Again, I'm not endorsing those prices, but in certain markets and for certain specific tickets, it's a lot different than $5,000 for middle of the floor in Tampa. So right. I, I don't know what we're going to need more time. And probably when we do our next episode, we'll have a lot more to say on this, I would imagine. Well, I think a, a big test case is going to be the Friday on sale for Mohegan Sun. That's Friday, July 22nd. It's a casino they already get the high rollers there anyway, and it'll be interesting to see if they do kind of tame down that algorithm, whether they'll make it less or just make more tickets available at the original face value, which is still $450. You know, they may, they may not make a statement, but if they can kind of modify and adjust the, the pricing that comes out, that would be a that would be even that would be a huge step forward. All right. Well, let's see what happens. I'm not really counting on that myself, but we also let's just for a second focus on the U.S. tour. Obviously, everything is being overshadowed by this ridiculousness, but there are 31 shows that are going to take place throughout the United States, with some exceptions. The biggest one being, of course, the entire state of California has no shows, which is pretty unprecedented. Not pretty. It is unprecedented for the first leg of a Springsteen tour. Now, from what we're hearing, there's a valid reason why there's no show in Los Angeles or anywhere else in this area. And that's the likelihood that Bruce is going to play Desert Trip, the very large festival held out in India. They've done it one time before in 2016. This would be the second one. And Golden Voice, who promotes that show, has very strict exclusivity agreements in terms of where acts can play. They do that as well at Coachella, which they also promote. Okay, so that would take care of the California dates for basically for, for 23. Now, is there a chance that they could come back, say, in 24 and do some more, do some arena dates out in L.A., or is that going to be that going to be it? I don't know the answer to that yet is what's happening in 24. It, it does appear that if Desert Trip takes place in October and, and they're obviously far enough along that they felt comfortable omitting Los Angeles uh, as well as the other California shows from the first leg, we're going to have to see on that one likely he will do the desert trip that's going to be two weekends i believe it's going to be in october and 
then from there, I, I forget what the exact window is where he won't be able to play after Desert Trip, but it doesn't sound like he has any plan to do more American dates in 2023 after the conclusion of the outdoor shows. So that would potentially leave 2024 for additional shows. And it does sound like the tour is going to run well into 2024. It would be hard to believe he plays an entire tour and doesn't play in the city of Los Angeles. Right. And I would add the Northern California as well. I can't imagine him not playing San Francisco or Oakland or whatever the, his arena of choice is out there at this point. He said he has such a history out there. I'm talking to you, Winterland. That uh, would be uh, even a bigger slap in the face if you just if you missed that that region entirely. Yeah, I don't think that's going to happen. And I'm not sure that the San Francisco area is tied to the Golden Voice exclusivity. It's hard to say because I don't believe that's ever applied to any Coachella acts. But who knows? Certainly, let's put it this way. And the theme of this has been (laughs) lots and lots of money for Bruce. If he does Desert Trip, they're going to be lining up trucks filled with money for him. Who knows how much money he'll get paid for that? I believe, I'm pretty sure it'll be the largest single day payday of his career. (laughs) That would be something. And and of course, that that would be paid for by the attendees of, of the festival. So it's not it's not exactly a cheap ticket now, is it? It was incredibly expensive in 2016. The Who played, the Stones played, Dylan played. There were six acts overall. That's one of the questions I think here is who would play with Bruce in 2023? We don't have any word on that yet. And it could be a really, really cool event. The whole theme, again, we're just get your checkbooks out because (laughs) $5,000 tickets in Tampa. Desert Trip is going to be serious serious cash if you decide to go both the cost of the tickets the accommodations out in the desert but that's also a big time destination event so it's quite a bit different than a single arena show in tampa also obviously you're seeing multiple a-list acts right any idea of when this could be announced or i mean do you remember when the last one was announced I believe the last one was announced in May. So it's probably a while off. That's just something else we're going to have to wait and see. Okay. All right. Yeah, it's going to be a long time for people in California to have to wait to even hear if they're going to get a show. But uh, I guess it sounds like it's probably going to happen. But nothing's definite until it actually gets announced. And, of course, Bruce is definitely coming back and playing additional shows. We're hearing their stadium shows in August and September. They've already confirmed in the initial press release that there was going to be another leg. And I don't think we're giving away any secrets when we say there's going to be multiple shows at MetLife. There's going to be a show in Foxborough. There's going to be a show in Philly and the usual places. So if you didn't get a ticket for the arenas, the good news is there's going to be much bigger venues coming. Ah, true. And, it's going to be the usual D.C. to Boston quarter, I'm sure. And then hopefully hopefully Chicago will get a show that they, they did not get. Oh, definitely. This spring. Definitely, because they're not on the arena leg. Maybe we'll have some surprise venues in there as well. But uh, I guess we'll, we'll find out. Probably not until after April 14th when the U.S. leg closes uh, at Newark. Yeah, we'll have to see when they announce the outdoor shows. That that actually would be on a fairly short schedule for shows in August and September to not announce them until after April 14th. Perhaps they'll do it a little bit earlier, as we see with the arenas here. They're going on sale six to eight months in advance, which is much longer than the normal lead time for for Bruce. But that's just the way the industry is now. So they're just doing what other people do. Okay, yeah, they're not they're not really pioneers in and of themselves, but they certainly are good followers. Well, I think let's take a break. And we'll go back to the portion of the show we've already recorded, which focuses on the UK dates and also the amazing Paris 2012 releases, which unfortunately are a little lost in our episode (laughs) now because we've spent this time really picking apart what happened this morning and and rightfully so, because again, just so frustrating and and very disappointing. And we await to hear if they're going to make a statement on these matters. Not holding my breath on that one. My name is Cindy Burnett, and each week I interview at least two traditionally published authors on my podcast, Thoughts from a Page. We talk spoiler-free about their books, so you can listen whether you have read the book or not. 
and then we delve into things that you most likely won't hear about anywhere else. The importance of the cover design, why they included various aspects of the story, personal details about both the books and the author's lives, and so much more. You can find the podcast on every major platform and learn more about it on my website, thoughtsfromapage.com. Thanks so much for checking it out. What's up, everybody? I am Finn McKenty, host of the Punk Rock NBA podcast, part of the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. My podcast is all about doing what you love for a living. And every week, I sit down and talk to people who have done exactly that. For example, musicians like Tommy from Between the Buried Me, Matt from Periphery, Lil Lotus and Shinigami, among many others. Photographers, artists, designers, YouTubers like Glenn Fricker and Sarah Dietschy. And I unpack exactly how they got to where they are today with the goal of helping you do the same. So if that sounds cool, you can listen and subscribe at SoundTalentMedia.com and I'll see you there. The European tour, and let's talk a little about the UK, especially I just got back from BST High Park because I saw Pearl Jam there over this past weekend. And that was announced as the two London shows today for Bruce. And he is selling an absolutely massive number of tickets in Europe. It's it's really quite incredible. Well, didn't one of the press releases say one million tickets? Yeah. And, and that was before these UK shows were announced. Now, High Park, I think... I. I forget what they said. I think it's about 65,000 people packed into that park. Now, what I will say, having experienced it this past weekend, and I was in the gold circle via the 10 club, certainly that did not seem to be a great venue if you're in the regular GA. There's a gold circle in front of the stage. There's also a diamond view for Bruce, which is a little bit off to the side, but I think most people, if you if you can do it, you're going to be happiest there in the gold circle. Okay. All right. What exactly does BST stand for? British Summertime. Okay. So is that the name of the festival then? It's BST High Park is the official name of the festival. Ah, okay. So, But it's not really – it's misleading. It, it, it's not really a festival. Like Pearl Jam was the headliner. They sold two shows for Pearl Jam. They're selling two shows for Bruce. The thing that makes it more of a festival setting is that the it's in groups of shows. So the weekend Bruce is playing, he's playing Thursday and Saturday. There's going to probably be someone playing Friday night between him. And this past weekend when Pearl Jam played two shows, Duran Duran played Sunday night. So there's multiple artists that headline Adele and the Stones at a headline the week before. But it it is the performer show. But on top of that, they also have multiple stages with numerous other acts. The Pixies opened uh, night one for Pearl Jam and Stereophonics went on right before them uh, night two. I found that festival to be much more enjoyable than I expected. Now, again, I was in the gold circle. It was it was very relaxed, a, a, a very good time. The food choices seemed to be pretty decent. There weren't huge lines for the bathrooms, at least in the gold circle area and and I, I enjoyed it quite a bit, and, and, I, and I had a great time in London. So I, I think I'm not going to go to Bruce in Hyde Park, but I think everyone who does go, will he'll do two really good shows there. Okay, so when can we expect to find out who will be, quote-unquote, opening for Bruce next July at, in, in London? You know, I don't remember when they announced that for Pearl Jam. And the whole thing with Pearl Jam, not to get too much into these shows— as you're aware, I bought the tickets originally for Pearl Jam to play Hyde Park in the summer of 2020, back in 2019. So I don't even remember. It was such an elongated process. Mm. They they moved from 20 the shows from 2020. Well, there was one show in 2020. They then announced that show, of course, was canceled because of the pandemic. And then they announced two shows for the summer of 2021. And then, of course, those shows were canceled <laughs> and they finally were played this year two and a half years after we first bought the initial set of tickets. So I don't really remember when they announced the support acts. I, I think it was more recently, within the last five or six months, perhaps. Okay. All right. That makes sense. And then there are there are two other UK dates. Uh, he's playing Villa Park in Birmingham. That's actually the site of one of my, my favorite Springsteen shows from the Tunnel of Love Tour. 622, June 22nd show of 88. Uh, he did Vigilante Man, and uh, I really, really like that one a lot. Good sound quality, too. <laughs> and then he's also playing Edinburgh, which I believe, someone said this earlier, it's the first time the E Street Band is playing there since 81. 
So that's kind of a big, big deal. I guess he hit it on the Joe tour, but I don't think, uh, but not with the band at any point. That's pretty crazy if they haven't been there in over 40 years. Yeah, so that's the that's the four date uh, UK tour, and actually I'm kind of surprised they didn't they're not doing Wembley, but again, Hyde Park won't allow that. You know, you don't do Hyde Park. And the Stones just did two dates at Hyde Park. Adele did two dates at Hyde Park. You're subject to geographical restrictions, and Hyde Park they're filling a lot of people into that area. Two shows is a huge number of people, and I just don't think they would let them play another show in London. What I meant was in place of Hyde Park. Instead of playing this open park, they would they would do the stadium like in like in '85 oh, and '88. Oh, I don't want to be overly cynical during this episode, but I I think we know why he's playing Hyde Park. <laughs> okay, the Almighty Dollar. Yes, I I think they wheeled out the money for him there as well. And okay. look, that's how. Anyone else, if you're in business and you're doing something and you're taking bids, you're going to take the highest bid. I mean, let's face it. That is true. That is true. I'm just not a big fan of these uh, these venues that are just open fields, basically. But that's me. (laughs) Again, I think it's true. And I look back in the main GA the other night and it went back so far. First of all, let me just say I can't even imagine being on that stage, how cool it must be. People stretched and the show takes place. It start. They went on at eight o'clock in London this time of the year. The sunset's about nine twenty. The sun started to set as the show was happening, and it was just a gorgeous setting. Uh, and you know how much I love London. Look, it's imperfect. Would it be better in a stadium? Probably. It's imperfect, but this is where they're playing and. I will say to people, again, based on my recent experience, I wouldn't let that deter you from going to the show. Now, I don't. I think if you can, you should try and get yourself a gold circle ticket. But <laughs> yeah, it, that would be the it, best of of all worlds, yeah, right there. For sure, would be. Now, I want to before we move on to our archive, I wanted to get your thought on something that's been debated in certain places: the idea that because the tickets. And we haven't. We didn't give the exact numbers. I don't think Philly, the arena website has the pricing up it's 399.50 for the pit it's 399.50 for prime seats on the floor behind the pit it's 399.50 for prime seats next to the stage that's the base price and then it goes down in numerous price levels and the lowest price level i think was 65 dollars but i have a question for you there's been some debate as to whether the idea that people are now going to be paying 400 dollars plus service charge and perhaps even more with the platinum tickets, that he would now be compelled to play greatest hits to satisfy <sighs> the crowd because of the price of the ticket. I completely disagree with that. What do you think? Well, it's it's interesting you bring that up because I was thinking about this earlier and that the people you're going to have who are going to be spending that kind of money for the pit are going to fall into at least two at least two categories. One, the diehards who, like us, who you know this is this is what we do we, we go to these shows repeatedly so we're going to go to multiple shows we're going to spend the money that to be where we want to be so you're going to have us and then you're going to have the people who just have the money who want to be there i'm thinking of all the hedge it's fund. a scene yeah it's a scene right well i'm thinking of the hedge fund managers and the other masters of the world who are going to be a massive square garden in that pit and so you're gonna on one hand you're gonna want to have you're gonna have us going hey play protection play lucky town play happy you know play ain't good enough for you, and then on the other hand you're gonna have these guys going glory days, you know it doesn't doesn't take much I think to satisfy us just play you know two or three deep cuts or more unusual tracks every night and and then the rest of the show will be more along the lines of of a greatest hits and. I thought he did a great job of that in, in 12 and 13. So I assume he's going to be able to do it again. I don't I don't think ticket prices really, really dictate what kind of show it's going to be anyway. I just completely would disagree with anyone who says that when he writes the set list, he's thinking about people paid $400 and they may be casual fans. We just know he doesn't operate that way. Uh, we just talked about him on the Devils and Dust Tour. This is a guy that in arenas sat on a stage by himself and played an auto harp, a banjo, <laughs> and a ukulele. I mean... <laughs> yeah, he, yeah, he's, he's going to... 
he's going to have a show. Or I mean, he he said even on East Street Radio a couple months ago, or was it just last month, that he's already written out a set list. And when he does that, he does it. He wants to come up with a show that he wants to play. That's going to say he's going to say what he wants to say. I don't you know I don't know what he wants to say on this tour. He kind of indicated he just wants to have a big party every night. So you know maybe that lends itself to more of a greatest hits. But I'm not. I'm not so so certain that has anything to do with money. Just he just wants to have a party at this point. Yeah, I don't really necessarily subscribe to the idea that it's going to be all greatest hits. The war horses are going to be played, and they're going to be played a lot. But when you're talking about something like greatest hits, then you're bringing glory days into the equation, and and just using that one as an example. We know in recent years that hasn't been played very much. It, just even looking at the archives from the reunion era. It's on Paris Night 2, which we're going to talk about later, but really not that many others, and it wasn't played on the reunion tour at all. Well, actually, uh, Glory Days made it made a comeback on the Rising Tour, and the only archive release from, from that tour does include it. So we do have an archive release of it uh, from there, as well as uh, the Philadelphia 2009 show where where he did the Born in the USA album uh, front to back. That's true, and, and I don't want to sound like I'm knocking Glory Days. I actually really enjoy Glory Days, and... All the time, I'd much rather hear that than, say, Darlington County or working on the highway, that's for sure. Well, but, you, you heard both of those in Paris in 2012. <laughs> well, I, I, well, because in recent years, what he has done is, I think because he himself has some kind of thing where he doesn't want to play every hit, he uses songs off Born in the USA that weren't hits to fill those slots to please the audience and he gets away with playing a Darlington County, which was never a single, instead of playing Glory Days. To, 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 to me, there's been too much Darlington County in recent years, but that's a whole separate issue. But, yeah, I, but I just think we're going to get the songs Born to Run is going to be played. Badlands is going to be played. We certainly know Prove It will be played quite a bit. Promised Land will be played quite a bit, if not every night. Rising, Land of Open Dreams. <laughs> these are not surprises and have nothing to do with uh, the, the pricing of the ticket. It, it's no. going to be the show that he wants to play. And to the extent that there's going to be hits in there, some of them, I hope he plays hits. You know, Streets of Philadelphia, which is probably the biggest he's, hit he's had in the last 30 years, it would be great to pop up every now and then. Every one now step and then, up. Yeah. One step up is a song that's been played with the E Street Band. What was it once in the last since the tunnel tour? <laughs> yeah, one time. One time since you know, that was a that ended. was a top twenty single. So Tunnel of Love, my, the song is yeah. in and of itself. That was yeah. a top ten hasn't song. Hasn't been played. I mean, it was played once in twenty sixteen. So yeah, was, I, I think he's going to come up with a set list that's going to be really interesting. This man knows how to put on a show. There, we wouldn't be doing this podcast if he didn't know how to put on a show. So <laughs> I just think he's going to do the show that he wants to do. He's not going to worry about what people are paying. Pearl Jam has not been worried about what people are paying, and they have very high-priced platinum tickets on this tour for the first time. I just think that that's a non-issue. And he's going to do a crowd-pleasing show, and and certainly in Europe, where we know he tends to play a higher energetic, more Born in the USA-oriented, perhaps, show, I'm sure that's what's going to happen there. And it'll be very, very interesting to see in the arenas the night of February 1st in Tampa what the set list is going to be that night. And, uh, and that's why everyone's going to want to be there. So that's going to be huge. That's going to be huge. And yeah, where is the letter to you material going to, going to fit into to his set? That's, that's a big question. And well, I'm sure we're going to be doing more episodes about that. We already did one with a fantasy set list, but that was two and a half years ago. I'm sure we're going to be doing, uh, two years ago, I should say, but I, I'm sure we're going to be doing a lot more talking about that in the days to come, because there's, what are we about six, six and a half months from the tour beginning. So there's going to be lots and lots of talk about what he might play, and that's going to be a lot of fun. So, and then, and then, of course, I know you you stick you stick away from any any kind of rehearsal reports or sound check ch sound check reports because you want to be you want to see that if set I, fresh. If, if I can, if I can, I would like if I can. It may be impossible, especially now in the internet age, to be totally in the dark. If I'm able to get there, and and God willing, I hope that's the case. Yes, I would like to see the show without knowing what's to come that first night. 
couple things on, on that note is that the uh, convention hall is no longer usable. So no, uh, it's not like they're going to be rehearsing in there and we're going to have friends on the boardwalk listening, posting, uh, posting those reports. So you're not, you're not going to have that. And then, but then you have to worry about what happened in 16, which was, I think was Danny clench actually posted a picture of the handwritten set list from the, from the post album portion yeah. of the show. And, you know, of course, and of course, when 2016, you knew two thirds of the show even before you even walked into the building. Yeah, um, and I'm so glad that's not going to be the case this time. Not to knock those shows, and there were some wonderful shows in 2016 on the album portion of the tour, but it's going to be very exciting. Uh, obviously, we've very. been through a lot now for you and for some of the other people that I'm friends with who don't see as many shows as I do. From the idea that it's a pandemic thing in terms of Bruce for me. That's sort of lost on me because I've seen Pearl Jam so many times this year. I've seen Jason Isbell. I've seen The War on Drugs. I've seen Lindsey Buck. I've just seen a huge number of shows. So the idea that it's a pandemic celebration, that it's over and we're out living again, that I'm not really going to have that by February 1st, but I'm just going to be so excited to see Bruce with the E Street Band for the first time since I left Australia in 2017. <laughs> That'll be more than enough to fuel my anticipation yeah well i had a i was pretty emotional I'll, I'll admit it when i saw him at the steve Earl show last december so i can yeah. i'm sure it's going to be the same way with uh, and you almost didn't go to that until three hours before that's true i had to be uh practically guilted into going <laughs> thank you for guilting me how <laughs> history is complicated the story of human progress is long messy and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the facts from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? Did the Allied powers go too far in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast, is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon. All right, let's move on to the archive releases, finally, uh, and, yes. and, a, and a surprise, because, and I had been approached by Backstreets to write the review for July 5th, which I was very excited and happy to accept. They did not tell me that the July 4th show was coming out as well. An interesting and really valid choice that they made to release both of those shows together, because they, they as great as the July 5th show is, the pair together really tells, uh, I think, what was going on in the summer of 2012. And Al Chiller on this one, he, I, I think he really hit a home run. Uh, the crowds were really a factor at these shows. And sometimes, as you know, and as we've discussed on the show, I, I think he doesn't really get some of the crowd moments, but that's not the case here. The crowd is is present. It's an important part of what happened on these nights, and that is reflected on on these releases. Oh, uh, I wasn't there. I did listen to the audience source bootlegs at the time. I could feel the energy there. I could feel it. I can feel it here. You can the energy on especially on the second night. Those those six songs before you even got to uh, we take care of our own. I mean, it, the energy just builds, and the audience is right there with them. And yeah, I can hear what you what you've been talking about for ten years now. <laughs> How about that? It's a worthy release. We knew it was going to be, and I'm just so happy it finally arrived. When, 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 when our buddy John approached me and said, "Will you write this month's review?" and and right away when he said that, I figured I knew what it was because it was July. It was the 10th anniversary. A lot of people actually had been speculating that that might be the release. And when I started to compose my thoughts about what we went through that night, it was. It was a very, very special night. There was a very special feeling in that building. 
I won't go through the whole thing. If you want to go to Backstreets.com, you can read my review. Kieran Lane wrote the review for July 4th. And that was that was a night that that was very memorable for me. I mean, of course, I was in Paris, but just the the circumstances, so many people that we know were there. It was it was a really knowledgeable crowd. Bruce had tons of family there. It, everything just came together that night. And, and, and as we know, that sometimes that just happens and that's what makes for the best shows. And I think the fact that it was an arena show or that these were the only arena shows of that leg, right? Yes. Oh, well, okay. there may have been one more. There may have been one more. So, so I think being in an arena and meaning that there were not 60,000 seats, but only you know less than 20,000 available, it became pe- people who went, they sought out to be there. They made an effort to be there. And obviously a lot of people, I think you pointed out to me, it was since it was July 4th weekend, a lot of people from the States came over. And that while you know, while July Fourth doesn't matter to people in Europe, they, a lot of people came from all over Europe. Uh, it was really interesting to hear about the different nationalities and the different flags that were that were all over the arena, and and they they were they were certainly into it. What what the first thing that really struck me, I mean, besides the energy that just kept building during those first six songs, was the way they they sang the the audience sang the riff of "We Take Care of Our Own." I thought that was that's that's one of those special moments. I I don't. Remember Are you talking that. about the second night? Yes, the second night. I don't remember that happening that often. It didn't happen on the first night, and it happening, but it happened on the second, and it was that was a goosebumps moment for me. And just listening to it, just while I'm well, out I assume you heard the crowd on. I'm sorry. I, I assume you heard the crowd on East Street Shuffle from the first night, which was insane. Yes, well, that was that was spectacular, and that was one of those very another very cool moment where the crowd kept singing the riff, and and then the band went back into the song, and that's that's just that's a very special moment as well. That's top ten, top ten to me, maybe even at least of the Wrecking Ball tour. Now, over the years, of course, the July 4th show has become a little lost because there's been so much focus on the July 5th show, and rightfully so. That July 4th show was was a great show also, and it took place in an arena that was, it was over 100 degrees in that arena. It was an incredibly hot day in Paris, and the AC was dead in the <laughs> arena, and, and sweat was pouring off, Bruce was pouring off every one of us in the crowd. I remember I was I, I was guzzling water. It was it was it was crazy how hot it was. Yeah, and, and he still he still played for three hours and twenty minutes. There was, it was one of the and you know I've said this to you privately. Those two performances are two of the most remarkable things I've ever seen. When you calculate in, the man was sixty three years old at this point, or approaching sixty three. Just the stamina and and to play in that heat with that kind of energy. It, it was remarkable. It really, it, the guy is, especially then, we'll, we'll see now he's going to be 73, as hard as it is to believe. <laughs> but it, it was superhuman what took place in that arena in that heat. The fact that he did not collapse is at 63 years old to perform for three hours and 20 minutes in an arena that had no air conditioning and was just like a, a sauna. It, unbelievable. The adrenaline just just fueled him for for those for the full show, and I'm actually kind of disappointed in one thing about this show is that he could have used the line the air conditioning breaking E Street Band yet he yet he denied it. You know that's a mark against him right there. <laughs> well, I, he was probably so hot at that point he, he couldn't think straight, so I would give him <laughs> a break there. Probably not. And uh, performance aside, what I found really interesting about that second night, the July Fish show. There's no Badlands and there's no Promised Land. No. And how how often does that happen? That, that neither no. one is played. That's that was something different. That was a show. I, I don't know what was going through his head. Of course, the written set list shows ties that bind into we take care of our own. But right from the start, he had something strange going on because Ties to Bind started with an intro that was We Take Care of Our Own. I, he, for some reason, and I don't think he's done that at any other show in, in recent memory, he, he, it was a fake out. And, <laughs> I, and, and, and I remember when, when the drum beat started, and it, I was like, boy, he's opening with We Take Care of Our Own again. That's kind of strange on a back-to-back night. And it, it was a total fake out. And, and it was definitely intentional. Then he called Steve for, for No Surrender. And 
that was a f- phenomenal version. It just that it was, half an hour just was driving. Oh my God. That <laughs> half an hour was that's right up there in the experiences. Now, of course, this is a band without Clarence. Nobody is suggesting that this is the same as the E Street band as when Clarence and Danny were in the band. But that half an hour, it's all about Bruce, the reading of the crowd and the energy and just the the selections that he made and the way the show built and everyone knew because he was you could see in the audience you, he was calling the songs out one by one he was running all over the stage and it also was a very knowledgeable audience as, as you pointed out people came from all over the place it was not casual fans there for the most part it was it was diehard Springsteen fans and everyone understood that especially as the songs went on where was We Take Care of Our Own, which had been the first or second song pretty much every night. There may have been one or two exceptions, but it certainly was never later than the third song. And here there's just song after song coming that he's calling out uh, and the performance was scorching and it's just building into this frenzy. It was crazy. It, it was just a total awesome experience to witness. And then he went through the six songs, all of which, well, I think there were five audibles. He he opened with ties and then there were five audibles. The Downbound Train, which of course is one of my favorites, was just, it was one of the best versions of the song I've ever seen. There was that extended code at the end with Steve taking a solo. And by the time they got to We Take Care of Our Own, as you say, with the singing of the melody, the crowd was absolutely, it was that's the one thing, and as great as St. Louis was as a show and some of the other shows we've seen, the one thing I'll always take away from Paris that second night was that was probably the greatest crowd I was ever a part of. It was it was just, it was a magnificent experience. Okay, well, I certainly hear that. And talk about greatest, I think this this is one of the greatest racing in the streets of all time. It was just well, a phenomenal, at- beautiful version. And... Everett Bradley, you you don't really you didn't really hear him too much, but on this recording, on this song, he he just adds a little subtleness to it that just it, it puts it over the top for me. Well, and you skipped over one thing, and and I brought it up in my review, and and Eric Flanagan on the Nug site brought it up. It was the combination of for you solo piano into racing. It was. You could have heard a pin drop in that arena when when For You was being performed, and it was a very emotional performance. And then it went right into racing, and that the way that racing built, and that is one of my favorite versions of racing, certainly of the reunion era, it went on for more than 11 minutes. And it built to such a crescendo, and the feeling in that building when that song was coming to a close, I got goosebumps listening to it again off this mm-hmm. release Absolutely. It's it's just such a memorable moment for for I think everyone who was there. And what I'm really happy with again is that it just is reflected on the release that, that came out. He, he, again, he really nailed it. And yes. you get the sense, you feel the building on this release. And and we've talked about this so many times. That's what I want from any of these archive releases. I want to feel the building and and I really feel it on both of these Paris releases. Okay, and certainly the fact that it's indoors, the, the sound is is contained. It doesn't just go out into the universe. It just stays in the building. It, it just stays in there, and you can feel it. You can really feel yeah. it on, on the recording. I like that. I like that a lot. And, and the encores this night, he, he just kept going, and uh, it, the show was really running late, almost to 1 a.m., as I recount in my Backstreet Review, and the story he told before, the fact that he had his mom, Pam was there, Patty's mother was there. That story before We Are Alive is so beautiful about growing up and how powerful an influence his mother was. And that was a song that ultimately, as the tour went on, really, in my opinion, didn't get played often enough. And it, and it's great that we have this stunning version from from here. Yes, I think the story is one of the best ones that that sets up the song much more than some of the other ones. I mean, I'm thinking of that one from the Philly Stadium where there's a train coming. It's like, what does what does that mean? But in this in this version, in this performance, he keeps it focused and, and he brings it from his childhood and he connects it to his mother. And it, it was it was a very beautiful story that the, what, what he said and followed up with Thunder Road. 
I, I get goosebumps whenever I hear the, the, the horns playing Clarence's solo at the end of the song. That always it's always one of one of the best moments of, of those shows for me. Uh, and speaking of glory days, which I referenced from the show earlier, <laughs> boy, was that building rocking during glory days and seven <laughs> nights to rock. I just well, the whole, there, this was a rocking. Crazy. I mean, for, you know, from I mean, we are alive, not exactly a rocking song, but it sets up the tension. And then from the time Thunder Road kicks in through the end of the encore, that's 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 rocking right there. And then uh, the, the building was shaking. Okay, I believe it. I believe it. And then you go back to the first night, and I thought that was a tremendous performance of Born in the USA, talking a little bit about the history of how France helped America in, in our own revolution. And they were so they were friends to America before there was America. And that was, yeah. a tr- like I said, a, a, a tremendous version of Born in the USA. And I love it when it goes into Born to Run. And it just, it just kind of built from there, even though, uh, you know, my wife's favorite song, Bobby Jean, is in there as well. The only thing I really remember from that point, I do remember it was a great performance, but I, by that point in the show, I, I have to admit, I was thinking to myself, oh my God, is it hot in here? <laughs> <laughs> well, I hope you, I hope you drank a gallon of water once you, once you made it out and made it back to your hotel room. It was that, boy, it, that was, that was crazy. The only other time I've never been in an arena that was anywhere near that hot. Of course, I, I don't think I've ever been in an arena where the air conditioning totally failed. The That's only the other time I've been in a building that was that hot was the July show at Convention Hall that you and I attended the, after the Today Show. I think it was July 30th, uh, 2002. They did an yeah. afternoon rehearsal show, and it was about 100 degrees, and the show took place during the daytime. And, of course, Convention Hall is not well ventilated. That was the it... only other time that there was ever anything close to what I felt in Paris. <laughs> okay. And it, I don't even think the Convention Hall had air conditioning. So they really they opened the doors, and they yeah. brought in the fan, the, you know, the big industrial size fans. So, yeah, that, that was a pretty hot day. Um, yes. But but yeah, this performance. I mean, even of that first night with it, July Fourth Independence Day, just beautiful. Yeah, it, uh, totally a big time show, and they they made the right call. And I hope they're going to do this a little bit more in the future, releasing the pair of shows. They fit together so well, and there there are other pairings that probably would work just as well. I know you, you and I were talking about the Turku shows from 2013. Right. The second, it, it was the second show where Wages of Sin was played, right? Uh, they both had excellent set lists. I forget yeah. which night was which. And I think one night had Ain't Good Enough For You. And I think there were some others in there, but both of those shows had tremendous set lists. So that would be a great combination to, to release. But just to finish up here, uh, he finished the show on July 5th with Dancing in the Dark. Uh, Backstreet's has a great picture. He pulled up Jessica on stage. I think she was a little reluctant at first, and then she <laughs> went with it. It was such a sweet moment because at the very end, he picked her up and carried her. And she had this huge smile on her face, which uh, Backstreet's has a picture of on the web page. And then from there, went to the traditional closer in 2012, 10th Avenue and just that concluded a, a, a very, very special evening. And uh, yes, again, yes. I, I appreciate that Backstreet's asked me to write the review for this. And I knew that I knew they were going to do. I knew they were going to come calling for you for this one. I knew it. I knew it. Well, and, I, and I hey, appreciate it. And you didn't even uh, you didn't totally pan the kids who sang on uh, Sunny Day. They were awful. Just off the well, let's yeah, let's not I, let's not get into that because why? After all this praise, talk about negativity, but especially on the first night, you are one hundred percent correct. Oh my God, was, I was really enjoying it. I was walking, walking to physical therapy. I was, had a good hot, good hot sweat going, and then Sunny Day came, and that kid started singing, and I just hit a freaking wall. Uh, anyway. It's actually, it's it's really funny though because on the second night, I think it was. Because I, when I was listening, I was like, I don't really remember this part. Uh, but it, the, Bruce pulls the kid up. I'm pretty sure it was the second night. And he's trying to get her to say, come on, E Street Band. And she wouldn't and she do it. she just keeps singing. No. Oh, I, I, I heard that one tonight. And ugh. yeah, I'm going to I'm gonna have to start not not including these on, my, uh, on the playlist when I put them on my iPhone. <laughs> well, the good news is if you want to... Th- th- Take it that way, although it's sort of bad news because it comes out of the pandemic. 
unless something changes, my guess is next year the stage is going to be a big bubble and you're never going to see anyone from the crowd on it because anyone who has not been fully tested is, is not going on that stage. So Yeah, I'm not going to uh, complain I, about that at all. I, I May, think many May, other people won't either. But May 6, 1988, here's a little stage announcement. The stage is for the fucking band. Well, but Thank that you. person was there uninvited. Yeah, I know, but still, the stage is for the band. <laughs> I paid to see Bruce. I didn't pay to see a little kid singing. All right. Well, I'm, enough with that. Let's wrap this up. We've done the tour and we've done the archive, so we'll, we'll move on. And, and next month, we'll come back after the August archive release comes out. And with that, let me do our spiel. Number the Bravest presentation of Bull Market Entertainment. We're a presentation of Evergreen Podcasts. If you want to find us on Twitter, we're at NBTB Podcast. And on the web, we're at numberthebravepodcast.com. So for Hal Schwartz, I'm Flynn McLean saying thanks for listening. Good luck with ticket sales this week. And we'll see you further on up the road at a show. Thank you so much. We'll be seeing you. Hi, I'm Daniela Clark. I'm Barbara Ann Wild. And we are The Honest AF Show. Our podcast is real, honest conversation with our celebrity friends and pros. Covering our anything but average rock and roll lifestyles. All while tackling the hell that is aging and the battle of beauty. Oh yeah, nothing is off the table. The Honest AF Show is available wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs> <laughs>